Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. According to the Center for Near-Earth Object Studies, managed by the Jet Propulsion Laboratories of NASA, there are over 33,000 objects being tracked that are classified as near-Earth objects. These objects, or asteroids, range from about 10 feet to about 25 miles across. They're considered near-Earth objects if they come within 120 miles of the sun, meaning they can potentially cross the orbital path of the Earth and then, you know, foomp, impact. As of now, they say there is no threat of impact by anything for the next 100 years. Of course, if you follow asteroid news at all, and why in the universe would you, there are multiple times a year that NASA says, uh, hey, we, we just had a huge asteroid skim past the Earth. Yeah, totally didn't see that one. So, you know, who knows? The joke in the last few presidential elections is that we prefer the asteroid over either of the candidates, and I have a feeling 2024 will be no different. That said, I'm ready for it to come now. Now, they're supposed to be made of a lot of metal, right? So maybe if we pile up a whole lot of magnets in one spot, say my backyard, maybe we can draw in one of those 25-miler ones. I just really think it's time. On today's episode, we're, we're just going to have a gay old time at the Gospel Music Association Dove Awards, and then we'll finally figure out what happened to the dinosaurs, and it's about time. And of course, uh, whatever I've cobbled together for a goal update after the post. So, crank up the stereo and rip off the knob. No, don't, don't do that. There, there's no reason to break your equipment. I mean, electronics and pretty much everything is just way too expensive to vandalize your own stuff these days. And then strap on that N95 or whatever you got. It really doesn't matter at this point. They all do about the same amount of nothing, to be honest. And here... Just looking in the sky, I don't see anything. Ah, oh, well, okay, hey, here we go. Christian music is dead. Long live Christian music. <clears throat> I'm a medium, I'm a fortune teller. I know every word you're gonna say. I'm a headstrong, lifelong city dweller. I can take you where you're going by the fastest way. It's gonna be okay. I traveled time, I'm here from the future, I can show you how this all turns out, I can save you with the data in my computer, we can flourish in the flood and avoid the drought, yeah, we're gonna make it out. You feel it in your bones, but your head is moving slow. I'm a scientist, I got a method and a measure for observable, reliable, repeatable fact. I'm a decorated educator in the field of pleasure, I've learned a lot of lessons I can reenact. Yeah, I've been keeping track. You sense that I am true, but your heart is split in two. I'm a prophetess, singing my story, a dressed-up, evervescent, ethical fraud. But this world ain't ready for an allegory. No, we're still waiting on a literal God. I just smile and nod. You have intuition, and it's telling you the story isn't done. As of the day I'm writing this, which is the end of October, this is the number 17 top Christian and gospel song on iTunes. Only a few months ago, it had risen to the top spot after the artist, I use that term loosely, was put in the crosshairs of a Christian pastor and singer. 
The artist in question is one Matthew Blake, a queer, well, professes to be a Christian, using they-them pronouns, performing as a very ugly drag queen named Flamey Grant, a play on the formerly Christian artist Amy Grant. I say again, Christian music is dead. Long live Christian music. Matthew prefaces his song with, quote, There are some things queer people will always know more about, things you can only learn by navigating the often unwelcoming world as a queer person. If you let us, we can be a trustworthy guide, a fortune teller, a scientist, a time traveler, a prophet. I don't know if you said it creepy like that, but it sounds creepy. <laughs> and oh, it's just got my Christian goose pimples all a tingle. What a very Christian-y thing to say, am I right? Billboard.com did a write-up on Matthew in August and the apparent controversy that some pastor guy caused. I don't really care about this article. I just want you to hear the write-up and how severely mentally ill or psychologically compromised, or maybe both, you have to be in order to write something in the world today. Here we go. And keep in mind that although Matthew appears to be fairly overweight, he's still only a single solitary male. This becomes important in a moment. Quote, Matthew Blake knows how to deal with internet trolls. Being a Christian queer person with a substantial online following, they've been doing it out of necessity for the better part of three years. But they had no idea that clapping back at one would lead them to the top of an iTunes chart. Blake is better known online as Flamey Grant, the self-described, shame-slaying, hip-swaying, singing, songwriting, drag queen making Christian music that speaks directly to their experience as a queer person. While that perspective helped earn Flamey over 80,000 followers on TikTok, it also recently put her in the crosshairs of another Christian artist. Sean Fucht, a singer and preacher known for hosting maskless concerts to protest government restrictions at the height of COVID-19 and claiming that he wants God to take over the government, Posted an article last Wednesday, July 26th, commenting on Christian singer Derek Webb's recent album release show. The lead photo for the piece showed Webb posing with fellow Christian artists Plum, Jennifer Knapp, and Flamey Grant. <sighs> there will come a day, and I don't know that we're very far off at this point, when this idiocy of writing in the mode of preferred pronouns will go away. If this sexual degenerate wants to legally change his name to Flamey, well, that's up to him. It's your legal name. I'll use it. As we've been able to name ourselves anything for pretty much a long time now. Prince became a symbol known as the artist formerly known as Prince. Kanye West changed his name to Ye. Ferdinand Louis Alcindor Jr. changed his name to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And Cassius Marcellus Clay Jr. changed his name to Muhammad Ali. Fine. Name yourself what you want. Whatever. I don't care, but pronouns are intrinsically linked to your sex, which is also your gender, which isn't assigned at birth. It's observed at birth, actually prior to birth in most cases, thanks to modern imaging technology, and it can't be changed no matter what you do to your name or your body, nor based on how you feel. Anyway, I digress. That Billboard article mentioned a man named Derek Webb. Most people probably have no idea who this is. For those of you around my age, which is pretty old at this point, you might remember the Christian contemporary band from the late 90s to about 2010, Cademan's Call. Unless you were a real fan, you probably don't know what they sang, but you remember the name and you'd likely recognize a song or two. 
Well, Derek Webb joined the band shortly after their inception as they just started to break onto the mainstream scene. He was a guitar player, keyboard player, and a vocalist. Well, a few weeks ago, the Christian Music World held the 54th Annual Gospel Music Association Dove Awards. Derek Webb, being in that world, was going to be in attendance. So found on protestia.substack.com, headline, Derek Webb attends Dove Awards in drag. Oh, and he's pretty, let me tell you. Derek, a male about six months away from being 50 years old, bald or at least with a shaved head, thick black framed glasses, a good start on tattoo sleeves on both arms, looks to be fairly short, maybe my height, fairly skinny, no comment, looks stunning in his black dress with white polka dots, two strings of pearls, black stockings, and shiny black buckled shoes. He's pictured with two others. Hulking behind the trio is a huge ugly woman in what appears to be some blue fairy-looking outfit with huge white heels holding up his bulk. Yeah, that's our friend Flamey. And the human in the middle of the front-to-back lineup is a fairly normal-looking young man. Black dress pants, reasonable shirt, black tie, black dress shoes, shiny suit jacket, nothing of note. <laughs> Except that uh, it's a lesbian woman. Her name is Grace Baldridge. Grace Semler Baldridge, to be accurate, an alt-Christian singer-songwriter who goes by the stage name Semler. You may have heard of her. Probably not, though. The only reason I know the name is because, and I had to go back and look this up for the specifics, but back in November of 2021, she was sitting at the number one Christian album on the iTunes Christian chart, making it the second time she was up there in 2021. Yeah, the nice thing about this second album is that she, uh, she didn't have to put the warning on this one. You know, the explicit lyric warning, uh, like her first one. I wish I was joking about all of this. So Derek in his dress, Semler in her gay, and the ugly hulking woman impersonator and queer person who doesn't know how pronouns work, Matthew, all went to the Dove Awards. Now, personally, I thought that they should have been very publicly escorted out of the building, then had a rock-solid pastor get up, deliver a very direct, very clear message on sexual perversion, condemn these either apostates or never-Christians in the first place, and present a very clear gospel message. But no, no, <laughs> no, the Duff Awards didn't do that. Color me shocked. On Derek's Facebook page, he posted a nice picture of him in his little dress of shame and wrote, quote, despite having won a few over the past 20-plus years, Tonight will be my first ever trip to the Dove Awards in the company of some very good friends, Flamey Grant and Grace Baldred Semler, among others. I hardly ever dress up, but this feels like a very special occasion. I couldn't resist, knowing that he wasn't going to respond, but I wanted to poke the bear of wokeness, so I replied to his post, quote, So I know you know all the Bible verses that explicitly call out sexual perversion, including those specifically stating that men shouldn't be wearing women's clothing. No need to go back through those with you. What I'd like is for you to show me biblically, in context, in other words, you can't just rip a sentence fragment out of scripture and claim to have something, where this is deemed okay, not sinful. And if you can't do that, are you ready to either recant your faith, admit you've never actually been saved, or repent and turn back to your creator who didn't create you for this kind of pornea? If you're genuine, if you're honest, you'll answer. If you just want your sexual perversion, you'll ignore. Go. He ignored. But a couple of other people didn't. A, well, it appears a, a couple, I guess, maybe, a man and a woman who go by the artist or band or group name Who Dosed, responded to my statement and question with, quote, Seriously? 
Uh, now, Who Dosed, when you look at their page, recently performed some background music or something for one of the former members of Jars of Clay. This web gets very tangled and has very wide reach when you start to peel back the layers. And I know those analogies don't belong together, but you get my meaning. They also, just a few days ago, finished up a concert in Atlanta and posted, quote, Thank you, Atlanta. We had a beautiful time with you all at UUCA, Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Atlanta, along with the Spirit Messengers. We played a long, deep set with many new pieces and concluded the evening in the middle of the audience with an interactive prayer for peace, doing the Abrahamic Zikr. This was and is a peace prayer for the Middle East. The music intertwines chants from the three Abrahamic faiths of Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. Peace through music and peace through shared practice and collaboration without weapons and without violence. May all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all beings be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all beings never be separated from that great happiness, which is sorrowless. Purple heart, prayer hands, purple heart. To their question of seriously, I responded, quote, That's a pretty solid argument. How about yes, that's serious, very serious. So why not try to answer the question rather than just sit there in your incredulity? I got no response. I did have another person respond to my original post, an individual named Mike King, who by his Facebook page is married with three kids. And from his cover photo of he and a very nice looking family, you can see on the inside of his front door a nice heart that says love. The heart, of course, being a rainbow of only six colors. We all know what that means. It means that his kids should probably be removed from a psychologically manipulative household. I won't tell you what he said, <laughs> but rest assured, his family should be very very proud of the crudity of what he said. Regardless, I responded, then he said something about my pretend Jesus, then swore a few times, and then I wrapped up my conversation with Sicko Mike with, quote, I do find it very interesting that a non-believer, a non-Christian, is the one defending alleged Christians partaking of sexual perversion. Sounds accurate. Now, where I thought you should throw Derek and his perverted fellow non-Christians out of an alleged Christian event, John Cooper, the singer from Skillet, who sounds like his vocal cords are just ragged, frayed strings right on the edge of snapping, and who, from what I've heard him say directly, seems to be one of the few, relatively speaking, actual Christians in Christian music today, he was asked for his thoughts on this debacle. He was not able to attend the awards this year, but an article on JubileeCast.com in part wrote this, quote, this is quoting Cooper now. Obviously, they're just trying to get attention. They're trying to disrupt, and they're going about it in a clever way, Cooper told church leaders. And the truth is, they are being the aggressors in this. Cooper said that there are, quote, lots of Jesus followers in the industry that may not know the best way to speak, adding that he wanted to stand for biblical truth as opposed to being compromised. They've been trying to antagonize the Christian music industry, including Christian artists, and have attempted to get them to affirm their views on the LGBTQ plus movement for years, Cooper said. The truth is, he added, they would not show up at a Muslim music celebration to do the same, because that would be a little bit too insensitive. You don't want to go in and just start stomping on somebody's religion. The laws of intersectionality would apply. However, Cooper said, quote, they know that Christians are so wimpy and weak, they know that Christians are then going to somehow feel intimidated by them and not know how to act. Cooper believes that the Christian music industry should recognize that Webb and the others are being the aggressors in the situation and said that he feels, quote, like the industry has set the groundwork to make people feel like they can bully us 
because we are so wimpy and weak, which in turn makes Christians apologetic about what we believe. Something he believes is an absurdity. Cooper was unable to attend the Dove Awards this year, but said that if he had been there and seen Webb and company, he would have, quote, ignored them, like the Apostle Paul instructs Christians to do in 1 Corinthians 5. Okay, well, that's an option as well. I think that ignoring them is just the side of condoning them. If Webb was brutalizing someone in the Dove Awards, would he have ignored him? If he was raping someone, should they ignore that? What if he wasn't hurting anyone else, but he was sitting there nude or worse? Would they just ignore that? Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, quote, Silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Now, does that mean that we must call out every little thing that we deem a sin? No, I mean, that's not really helpful. But something this public, this blatant, clearly flying the tall finger to Christians at the Dove Awards, to Christians around the world, and to God himself, eh, maybe something should have been done here. My friends, Christian music isn't exactly dead, like I said a few minutes ago, but it is in severe trouble, and I'd argue it's quite simply because of a failure of the church and of Christians in general. We've softened or removed the gospel message for the sake of peace and harmony. We've sat on our hands and bit down hard on our tongues as people who are not Christians, rather biblically knowledgeable, unregenerate, hellbound sinners, flaunt their sin in our faces. We've capitulated to the world regarding what constitutes church, what constitutes worship. When you have supposed faith leaders going to the unsaved in the world, asking them what they'd like to see in a church, what would get their butt in the seat and hopefully their money in the plate, well, when you ask the world what they'd like church to look like, the answer is going to be like the world. This doesn't seem like a hard concept. My previous church is in the same position many churches are in right now. They're a good church. They're a Bible-believing church. They're an aging church. They're a dying church. Many years ago, sitting on the leadership team, idea after idea was thrown out how to get people through the doors. Even then, I was getting frustrated with this question. Just preach the word. Just preach the word. I mean, yes, we need to figure out how to make sure people know that we exist, but we don't need gimmicks. I told them, as my filter tends to get slightly worse as I get more frustrated, that I could fill the church to the rafters next Sunday by advertising strippers and free beer. Then as people stared at me, I asked them if a full church is really their ultimate goal, because if it is, we can do that. My point was made. My point was clearly understood. My point was ignored. For years, I tried as the head of the children's department to make the Sunday school environment more appealing, to ensure we had teachers and materials that actually taught the kids something worth teaching and worth learning, that we had programs in place to bring kids in. But the reality is you can't push a rope. The pull has to come from the top. The pastor, the elders, or deacons, they must set the direction for the church. The problem we're seeing now is that because we've compromised at the top for years, we're now a few generations into a new kind of church, a church that's more focused on having a cafe in the foyer and lights and fog machines during the concert. I mean, the worship singing time, removing pesky and offensive things like crosses from the outside and inside of the church building, avoiding any mention of sin or hell or repentance, rather a focus on love, sometimes Jesus, but a lot about love and feelings and how when you're a Christian, your wildest dreams will come true because Jesus, because someone just wants you to have everything that your heart desires and wants to give you big warm hugs and heaven wants to bend down and give you wet sloppy kisses or something and God has a plan to make you prosper and you can do everything through Christ who strengthens you and give, and it'll be given to you. So plant that money seed. 
And really, it's all about you. I mean, God and his son Jebus, or whatever his name is, they're there too. But really, this life and this faith is all about you. So the messages are now more TED Talks than anything. Maybe good information, maybe nice pro tips for how to deal with various aspects of life, but in no way is it actual food that feeds the sheep. It's candy, enough to fill your belly, but leaving you hungry in a few hours, so you must go back to the candy bowl and get some more soon. And because we're a number of generations deep into the reformulation of what constitutes church, we're now reaping what we've sown in the world of music. Let's ignore Flamey and his, well, quite literally, satanic music. Let's look at a few examples of what was and what's popular today and what's available. So what was? A Mighty Fortress by Martin Luther. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe, his craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. Did we in our strength confide, our striving would be losing, were not the right man on our side the man of God's own choosing? Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he, Lord Sabaoth his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him, his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure, one little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth, the spirit and the gifts are ours, through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. What do we have today? The King is Alive by Jordan Feliz. Hallelujah, 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 ah, ah, hallelujah, ah, ah. Listen, how many of y'all know that the King is alive? Woo! Come on now, getting loud with it, uh, sing out, tell him God did it, God did it. He beat the grave and he's still living, risen to set the soul free. Why would I keep this song inside? Hallelujah, ah, ah, I think it's time to testify. Throwing my hands up to the sky, hallelujah, ah, ah, Jesus is alive. The praises don't stop, the devil's been dropped, got some good news coming straight from the top. He saved me from the fire, lifted me higher, feeling so good, gotta sing it with the choir. The king is alive, alive, I said the king is alive, alive. Crazy days got my head swimming, but we know the one who keeps the world spinning, the world spinning. We never lost, and we keep winning, because Jesus is still on the throne. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Why would I keep this song inside? Hallelujah, ah, ah, I think it's time to testify. Throwing my hands up to the sky. Hallelujah, ah, ah, Jesus is alive. The praises don't stop, the devil's been dropped, got some good news coming straight from the top. He saved me from the fire, lifted me higher, feeling so good, gotta sing it with the choir. The king is alive, alive, oh, the king is alive, oh yeah, alive, ooh. Come on and praise the name, somebody praise the name, Jesus, cause we're forever saved and death is in the grave. Oh yeah, come on and praise the name, somebody praise the name, Jesus, cause we're forever saved and death is in the grave. Oh, and the praises don't stop. The devil's been dropped. I got some good news coming straight from the top. He saved me from the fire, lifted me higher. I'm feeling so good. Gotta sing it with the choir. The king is alive, alive. Ooh, the king is alive, alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said the king is alive, alive. Sing it with me, alive, alive. Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
<sighs> what was Amazing Grace by John Newton? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be, as long as life endures. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow. The sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine.' When we've been there ten thousand years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. What is New by Lauren Daigle You say you used to hang around Diablos every night, every night, trying to fit with the crowd, making bets and picking fights, but that was your story before me. Why don't we give all the glory to the one that you are now? Because old habits die when you want to live. I don't see the old you, I just see the new. God put you in my life for such a time as this. I don't see the old you, I just see the new. So I heard you used to go down on South Street, making ends and your money meet, worried about what you're gonna eat. Yeah, ah, ah. Let's talk about how you skipped over your grave, two hands, one prayer, and everything changed. And I know the truth, and you know it too. Old habits die when you want to live. I don't see the old you, I just see the new. God put you in my life for such a time as this. I don't see the old you, I just see the new. Oh, all the wrongs you want to right, all the dark you want to light. Yeah, that's what you need, I see you. Oh, all the wrongs you want to right, all the dark you want to light. Yeah, yeah, I feel you. Yeah, yeah, ah. Eh. But that was your story before me. Why don't we give all the glory to the one that you are now? Because old habits die when you want to live. I don't see the old you. I don't even see it. I just see the new. God put you in my life for such a time as this. Such a time as this. I don't see the old you. I just see the new. I just see the new. Yeah. All the wrongs you want to right. All the dark you want to light. Yeah. 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 All the wrongs you want to right. All the dark you want to light. Yeah. 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 I know. I sound like a prude. I'm not. I promise. I'm actually pretty hip and cool, fairly with it. I think that's what the kids are saying these days, right? I'm not in any way saying that we can't listen to contemporary Christian music. I'm saying that there are choices that must be made, and there are better choices that need to be made in the time we find ourselves. And I'm saying that something changed dramatically, even in the last few decades, that's making us make these choices carefully. How do we go from a mighty fortress is our God to, quote, why don't we give all the glory to the one that you are now? What is that? And just to be clear, that pre-chorus is God, or Jesus probably, speaking to you or me. All that other stuff was our story before we met Jesus. Then, quote, why don't we give all the glory to the one that you are now? Show me once in the Bible, just once where God suggests or even implies that we, meaning Jesus and you or Jesus and me, should give all the glory to us. Not to God, to us. People my age who used to listen to that new Christian contemporary music in their teens, that all the blue hairs, who were probably about the age we are now, hated because they knew that music with a beat was from the devil. Probably good we didn't have smartphones with cameras back in the 50s and 60s. Oh, I've seen the movies. We of that age are in a very unique position to have seen a definite step change in music, in lyrics, and in the focus and point of the songs. 
No, I'm not saying that every hymn was or is theologically sound. There are outliers. I'm not saying that every Christian contemporary song from 30 years ago was solid. They weren't. But there is an absolute difference between the music of the distant past, the music of the recent past, and the music of today. My favorite band of all time, Petra. Oh, man, did the old people at the church hate them. There was no way rock and or roll music could be God-honoring. One thing that I didn't appreciate then, but I do now, is that Petra based almost every song on Scripture, like directly on Scripture. Back in the cassette tape days, you could unfold the tape case liner and you'd have the lyrics to the songs. Nearly every Petra song had the Bible reference at the end of the lyrics for that song in the liner notes. I had to dig back into my tape cases, and yes, I still have some tapes, and I found the Unseen Power Tape by Petra from 1991. Track 1, entitled Destiny. Romans 8, 28 to 30. Track 2, Who's on the Lord's Side? Joshua 24, 15. Track 3, Ready, Willing, and Able? 1 Peter 3, 15 and 2 Timothy 4, 2. And so goes nearly every track. Although I may disagree with them in specific aspects of theology, they really cared about standing on the truth of Scripture in their music. They wanted to honor God in what they did. If you notice these days, it seems like more and more so-called Christian artists are standing with the LGBTQQIA2 community, like Amy Grant, Jennifer Knapp, our rabble rouser Derek Webb, Lauren Daigle, Lecrae, Semler, Ray Boltz, Dan Hasseltine, the lead singer of Jars of Clay, Everyday Sunday, former lead singer Trey Pearson, and so many more. We've seen musical artists by the busloads either affirm homosexuality as being just fine, love is love, right? Or they just simply refuse to take a firm stance. Well, I'm sorry, but a squishy stance is an affirming stance. We've also seen artist after artist deconstruct their faith because, well, they don't agree with parts of the Bible, and they'd like Christianity to be remade more in their image. That's basically what they want. It's not that they don't believe the Bible— it's that they just think this old dusty document needs a little updating, a little help to be more relevant. As a middle-aged, very white, Wisconsin-raised engineer, I obviously love rap music. I think rap is actually probably the best musical form because it allows the artist to tell a complete story. I'm not kidding about this. There's so much that can be done with rap that can't be done with traditional music. I don't listen to it all the time. It phases in and out for me. I also like rock and hard rock and metal to a certain point, as sometimes you just need to rock. I know without knowing for sure that at least some of the artists I listen to aren't saved. They're just pandering to the Christian community because it's quite literally one of the easiest genres to break into and make some money. I know that there are a number of songs that I like that I'll get my jam on in the car that are soft in their theology. I try to be aware of and avoid those that are just blatantly anti-God while they sing songs about the God they hate, bilking money out of unsuspecting Christians, but I guarantee some of them slip through. But I also believe there's a difference between what we boogie down with in the car as opposed to what we sing in the church. I still try to be cautious thumbing down songs in my Pandora account that I know aren't good or that I know are from artists that aren't really Christians, but I'm good with rocking to some Demon Hunter knowing some of their songs are on the shallow end of the theological pool because they're not wrong in what they're saying. From, and from what I've looked up, they seem to be legitimate believers, and they're definitely better than listening to secular metal. At the same time, I know that groups like Bethel Music, Elevation Worship, Hillsong, and Jesus Culture are very popular in contemporary churches, and some of their songs, maybe most of their songs, sound fine. But I know what they mean behind the lyrics, and it's not what you and I mean. 
well, me, hopefully you do, I don't think we should be playing these on our apps or in our churches because I don't think they should get even pennies per play for what they're putting out. All of those pennies add up and help fuel the borderline blasphemous teaching that they do in their churches. I guess what I'm saying is that Christian music is severely compromised. Singing as a form of worship to God has been around since the creation of man. God described what was acceptable worship in the Old Testament. We've been given examples of correct worship over and over again in the Bible, as well as incorrect worship. Worshiping God isn't a game. It isn't open for us to do anything and everything we want, however we want. Remember what happened with Nadab and Abihu and Leviticus when they decided to do it their own way and offered strange fire? God did not accept their unauthorized worship, and the fire of Yahweh came out and consumed them. These were Aaron's sons, Aaron, the first priest, handpicked by God, the brother of Moses. They weren't given the benefit of the doubt. God does not accept strange worship. Blatantly disregarding the worldview of an artist, blatantly disregarding the intent of the artist and the words of the song, and saying that it'll just be fine, God knows my heart, or God knows what I mean. I don't know that that matters. There are fantastic musicians in every genre of Christian music. We are in a position with the vast number of artists and the innumerable methods of access that we don't need to compromise. You want great hymns, either old hymns or old hymns given a current flair, new hymns or other solid worship songs? Check out the Celtic worship band, the Gettys, Sovereign Grace, Rend Collective, to name a few. You want a good rapper? Trip Lee. Although, due to, I think, chronic fatigue syndrome, I don't believe he's putting out new music now, but he is fantastic. Try NF, although he's admittedly a very gritty street-level rapper. You like rock? I like Decipher Down, Thousand Foot Crutch, or We Is Human, a lot of other ones. Metal? I like Demon Hunter, like I said. As for Christian Contemporary, yeah, I, I really don't know anymore. It's not a style I really care for anymore, to be honest, so I don't know who's solid or who isn't. I know groups like Mercy Me and Casting Crowns used to be good, Maybe they still are. You'll have to do your own research. And I'm fully willing to admit that I might have some of these ones that I mentioned wrong. And if I find out that I do, I'll disassociate myself with them. What we do know is that the Bible is God's word. It's unchanging. It's everything we need to know about this life and the next. It gives us the rules, the laws, the warnings, the punishments, the rewards. The bottom line is that it gives us the truth. Derek Webb is not a saved individual. He simply can't be. You can't be pro-LGBTQQIA2+, or many of the other views the world holds that are counter to what the Bible says, and be a saved individual. But what Derek very likely is, by default of his past, is knowledgeable about what the Bible says. He knows that the Bible calls out sexual sin and perversion, and specifically homosexuality. He knows that the homosexual will not inherit the kingdom of God. He knows that it is forbidden for him to be dressing in women's clothing, that transgenderism is a sin. He knows exactly what he's doing, and he's looking in the face of his creator and telling him that he doesn't care. Derek also knows, I guarantee it, 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul writes, quote, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Derek knows the only answer is Jesus. He knows the gospel. He knows that Jesus came to earth as a baby born of a virgin. He knows that Jesus fulfilled prophecy after prophecy. 
He knows that Jesus was beaten, crucified, and murdered for no crime of his own. He knows that after three days, Jesus rose again, that he appeared to all the apostles, to a large number of disciples, and to a large crowd. He knows that Jesus ascended to heaven. He knows that salvation is a matter of repentance and belief. Derek, if he stops to evaluate what he knows, fully understands that his feelings on a subject don't trump biblical clarity. He knows that by affirming Semler or Flamey Grant or whoever else, he's affirming them straight to hell. He may or may not know that he's on the wide road, the road accepted by the world, the road to hell himself. He obviously doesn't care, at least for right now. You and I may not be able to have any influence on someone like Derek Webb. Maybe someone can, but it appears that that's not going to happen in the near term. What you and I need to do is make sure that we know what the scriptures say. We need to be aware, as best we can, who we're listening to and what they're singing and decide if that's the message we want entering our ears and minds. The days of most churches are generally solid or most Christian music is generally God-honoring, well, those are sadly in our past. I highly doubt they'll be back in the finite sin-cursed existence that we find ourselves in today. So we must do the discerning. We must ensure we're not filling our heads with messaging that makes us feel good while telling us lies. And I'm looking at me when I say this as well. Let me break the fourth wall to wrap this up. I'm a podcast guy. I listen to a lot of different podcasts, all with specific purposes. When they get overwhelming or I just can't listen to talking anymore, I will flip to music. Generally, I'll open Pandora and listen to a Christian rock station based on Decipher Down. But as I was typing up this transcript, as I was looking up and reading information, I stopped. I opened up Pandora. I added some of those solid artists I mentioned, Celtic Worship, Sovereign Grace, The Gettys, to my collection. And I created a station that compiles them and others. And my intention is, rather than popping on a podcast, which could be secular, political, a comedy, or a sermon, first thing in the morning as I get ready for work, maybe I start my day with even just a few solid hymns or current worship songs, along with my devotions, just to try to get my day focused the right way, something I've never been as concerned with as I'm usually running around, running late, trying to get out the door so I can get to the office. I can get up and get moving fairly easily in the morning, but I'm not someone that can get up early, spend an hour in reading and prayer. My mind just doesn't fire like that that early. It would be mostly a waste of time as my mind would be scattered. I know this because I've tried this. But maybe I can add some solid God-honoring, worshipful music to my morning routine and other times and just set my focus where it needs to be. Hey, it can't hurt, right? Please be aware of who you're listening to and what you're listening to. Please know what the Word of God says and weigh your music against that is not all that says Christian is really Christian. Just as we want to know the Bible rightly, we want to worship God rightly as well. Not all worship is equal. To offer wrong worship or to offer worship wrongly is to worship someone, but that someone is not God. Well, I could have sworn that I would never have to bring this up again. In fact, I'm a little embarrassed, to be honest. I just always thought, I mean, as we all know, when science settles itself, that's it. It's all over. And yet somehow here we are again. The good thing is that it's not completely changed, just clarified a little bit. In fact, on the surface, it doesn't seem like anything has changed at all. And yet, I really think we need to talk about it. See, found on universetoday.com, headline, Devastating Clouds of Dust Helped End the Reign of the Dinosaurs. Now, you may be saying, uh, duh, Dan, we already know that. Science documented that as indisputable fact like millions of years ago. 
And I know, I know, like I said, it doesn't seem like anything changed, but now, now, we know definitively what actually happened to the dinosaurs. Well, the, the ones that didn't turn into chickens, at least, 66 million years ago. Uh, but before we dig into this article, what kind of host would I be if I just served you the main course right as you sat down? No, 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 let's back up a bit. We need to sample the cold whores divorce and the soup and the seafood dish before the entree is served. And yes, in case you're wondering, I looked up the proper order of a formal multi-course meal to make sure that this is correct. You know, this... Uh, this really sad analogy that I just made. Hey, fun fact, did you know that the salad comes after the entree? I mean, somebody really needs to tell Olive Garden and literally every restaurant uh, across this country that they're doing it wrong. Plus, cheese. Cheese is supposed to come after the salad, and I'll be honest, I'm absolutely for that. Anyway, despite me now wanting some delicious cheese, we must press on. In 1953, Alan Kelly and Frank Daschle, a couple of geologists, proposed the idea that this Earth was impacted by one or more very large asteroids at some point in the past, which would account for the tilt of the axis of the Earth and would have caused global floods, firestorms, and atmospheric blockage of sunlight, and the extinction of the dinosaurs. Now, this was a very basic analysis of some rudimentary data, but this was really the first time this whole asteroid impact theory thing was proposed utilizing any sort of evidence-based hypothesis. In 1980, Luis and Walter Alvarez, a father-son team, as well as some others, proposed the same idea that this Earth was impacted by a massive asteroid at some point in the past, which wiped out the non-avian dinosaurs and many other living creatures at the time, although they didn't know where the impact might have occurred or how big the asteroid might have been, they did find some more concrete evidence for this theory. What did they discover? Well, if you were alive at the time, at whatever date that was, in 1980, you'll undoubtedly remember the 24-hour wall-to-wall coverage about finding the, quote, sedimentary layers found all over the world at the Cretaceous-Paleogene boundary, or the KPG boundary, formerly called the Cretaceous-Tertiary, or KT boundary, containing a concentration of iridium hundreds of times greater than normal. Huh? Yeah, it's all coming back to you now, isn't it? Well, because they found all that sweet, glowing, or, or radioactive, metal I really don't know what iridium is, but because they found all of that in that layer, this huge asteroid wiping out the dinosaurs theory has been named the Alvarez Hypothesis. Now, they didn't have any proof of an asteroid impact. They had no idea where it might have hit. They just found a lot of iridium. And although I know I'm just preaching to the choir here, we all know that iridium is... Very abundant in asteroids, but not so much on the Earth, so absolutely it makes sense for this theory to be named after them. Embarrassingly for them, and really science as a whole, however, was the fact that everyone bought into the crazy idea that this impact happened 65 million years ago. Pfft, no, we, we know that that's just stupid now. <sighs> that's like thinking Pluto's a planet. I mean, get with the times there, Granny. We'll correct that glaring error in a moment. What's almost too shocking to believe is that very shortly after the Alvarezes, the Alvari, formally published their earth-shattering iridium finding, geophysicists Glenn Penfield and Antonio Camargo were presenting some findings of their own. In 1978, they were doing some magnetic surveying of the Gulf of Mexico for the Mexican state-owned oil company Pemex, or 
Petróleos Mexicanos searching for good drilling locations. Long story short, they found some anomalies consistent with an impact site, but those were dismissed by Pemex. They were allowed to present those findings, however, at the 1981 Society of Exploration Geophysicists Conference, and despite what you'd obviously assume, a conference of this prominence, it was actually underattended. One reporter felt like they might have found something important and wrote about it, but again, the article didn't garner widespread attention. I mean, how could we as a population of humans not pay attention to the latest geochronophysiological happenings around the world? I mean, what is wrong with us? Uh, personally, I blame public schools. Well, I don't need to bore you with the story. It's really common knowledge at this point, I think. And it's a tale as old as time. I mean, various scientists searching impact locations, the random scientists stumbling on these findings made by Penfield and Camargo, Pemex core samples from decades ago secured and analyzed, bada-bing, bada-boom, the Chicxulub impact crater in the Yucatan Peninsula was finally identified in 1991. It took 19 more years, March of 2010, for 41 experts to review all of the data and evidence regarding this crater, concluding that this was the big one. This was the one that took out the dinosaurs, or more specifically, the, the dinosaurs that science needed to go away because others had to turn into chickens and such. Then in 2013, Paul René of the Berkeley Gynecology Center, uh, sorry, that's the Geochronology Center, <clears throat> it did some of that super reliable argon-argon dating, which definitely gives accurate results and is in no way influenced by assumptions about how old scientists think the sample is or the idea that everything has always run the same way for all of time, etc., etc. And he figured out that the 65-million-year-old impact date was just hogwash. In fact, that impact happened 66 million and 38,000 years ago plus or minus 11,000 years. Now, let me point out, doing an analysis on anything that you believe to be tens of millions of years old and narrowing it down to a period of 38,000 years is, uh, well, that's scientifically and logically not possible. That said, an 11,000-year error, give or take, is also a pretty large error margin in itself, but, but maybe not. I mean, they're scientists, and I mean... I'm a scientist also, but I'm not the same kind of scientist. Plus, I let logic cloud my thinking, which is very limiting when it comes to evolution theory. So that's where the Chicxulub Yucatan Peninsula asteroid impact wiping out the dinosaur theory came from. It's a relatively recent theory, and the knowledge of the assumed exact location of the impact is less than 15 years old. Let me take a quick sidebar here. Doesn't it feel like this whole asteroid killed the dinosaurs theory is much older than, say, at best 70 years? Doesn't it feel like the impact crater in the Yucatan Peninsula theory is much older than 20 years? Evolutionism has a fantastic marketing department called the public schools and institutes of higher learning. That said, I don't think there's any question that there is a massive impact crater at the Yucatan Peninsula. I don't think there's any question that that impact came from an asteroid. I wouldn't argue with the theory that when that sucker hit, it caused a massive amount of water, dust, and debris to be ejected into the atmosphere, or that it vaporized a bunch of what it hit, or that it deposited a large amount of iridium, or that it caused typhoons and tsunamis, sudden and catastrophic climate changes, etc. I'd say all of that, based on the immense size of the crater, is very plausible, likely correct. The physical evidence is there, and the physical evidence can be used to model what happened. 
A number of assumptions have to be made, like impact energy, asteroid size, asteroid mass, etc. But, but even there, based on the crater, a lot of backward calculating can be done to come up with a range of size, mass, speed possibilities. Based on those potential combinations, other assumptions would be needed, but a series of modeled scenarios about how much Earth was ejected, how hot the impact would be, what it would do to the waters, etc. All those can be developed. And so although a lot of assumptions still needed to be made, I'd say that because of the physical evidence, the potential combinations of size, speed, and mass were bounded quite nicely into a relatively small number of possibilities. Anyway, let's go back to our article. I mean, we might as well find out what they said since that's, you know, where we started and why we're here in the first place. Generally, science is settled that a big, beautiful asteroid probably the best asteroid of all the asteroids, is what caused the end of the dinosaurs and about 75% of all species on Earth. Thank you, Donald. It's generally been agreed that this impact launched rock, dust, and sulfur into the atmosphere, as well as soot from resultant fires across the world. For some reason, I'm not sure why this, albeit large, but local impact would have created global fires. <laughs> I'll get to that in just a few minutes. The theory posits that all of this stuff in the air blocked or reflected the sunlight, causing a global winter. Of course, that resulted in the Ice Age, etc., etc., and Bob's your uncle, dead animals. Now, the latest theory published in a new geology paper said that due to the massive amount of particles from this one large, but local impact, sunlight around the entire globe was blocked for as long as 15 years, dropping temperatures by 15 degrees Celsius or 27 degrees American. Additionally, this paper claims that this would have made it impossible for plants to photosynthesize. For this study, scientists from the Royal Observatory of Belgium studied sediment samples from the Tanis fossil site in North Dakota. This site, and I'm sorry, permit me to be a fanboy here just a bit. This is just a miracle of science. This site allegedly captures, ready, a 20-year period right after the asteroid impact. A site that we found at some point that captured a 20-year period of time from 66,038,000 years ago, plus or minus 11,000 years, can we agree that the fact that science was able to find this layer from that exact period of time from that long ago? I mean, that is just, it's just, it's just very hard to believe, right? And, and what did they find when they, quote, sampled the uppermost millimeter-thin interval of the Cretaceous-Paleogene boundary layer? I wish I had a drum roll. That's not true. If I wanted a drum roll, I just insert a drum roll here. Anyway, they found silicate dust particles. Eh? Huh? <laughs> now this layer, do you know how thin a millimeter is? It's like a 32nd of an inch. It's like 10 sheets of paper. That's what they found and analyzed from over 66 million years ago. A millimeter. Anyway. The uniform grain size of the dust was, quote, interpreted to represent the final atmospheric fallout of ultrafine dust related to the Chicxulub impact event. Now, you can interpret what was just quoted as saying, hey, we wanted this dust to be part of the event we want to be true so that we can form a slightly different hypothesis and get more grant money. Now, from a logical standpoint, and yes, I fully admit I don't have anywhere near the academic prowess of these science people, but I find this to be ludicrous. 
and it gets worse. Quote, based on their findings, the scientists also created a new paleoclimate computer model that evaluated the roles of sulfur, soot, and silicate dust on the post-impact climate. The new paleoclimate simulations show that such a plume of micrometric silicate dust could have remained in the atmosphere for up to 15 years after the event, contributing to global cooling of the Earth's surface by as much as 15 degrees C in the initial aftermath of the impact. Hey, what, what was that last bit? Never mind. Brr, Earth is cold now. The cooling in the initial aftermath of the impact from silicate dust, soot, and sulfur would have caused plant collapse affecting both land and marine habitats and, quote, mass extinctions would occur in groups not adapted to survive the dark, cold, and food-deprived conditions for at least two years. Question, Your Honor, what group at this point, per the theory of evolution, would have already been adapted to survive for two years of these never-before-experienced conditions? The theory says that 75% of species died off. Well, what kind of magic and or miracle did these other 25% pull off? Quote, the researchers said that this matches the paleontological records which show that any plants or animals that could enter a dormant phase, for example, through seeds, cysts, or hibernation in burrows, and were able to adapt to an omnivorous diet or weren't dependent on one particular food source generally better survived the KPJ event. Okay. Omnivorous, sure, for a little while, but even if the temperature dropped by 25 to 30 degrees F in the initial aftermath of the impact, that meat from the dead animals, it just ain't going to sit around there for the next two years waiting. It won't take long before those animals give in to rot. And without plants, I mean, what, animals are now going to just zonk out in a burrow for the next nearly two years? Or I guess maybe some of these 25% would have eaten some of the other 25%, meaning 25% really didn't survive? I mean, look, I, I know I'm kind of sarcastically mocking this, but there are a number of questions that really should be answered here. Okay, in the article, they have a nice little illustration. The illustration shows the globe laid out as a map one day before impact and then one day after impact, one year, 1.7 years, 2.2 years, and five to six years after impact. It's displaying the amount of global photosynthetic active radiation in watts per square meter. The day before the impact, the globe, except for the southern part, like Australia level and below, was seeing between maybe 70 and 150 watts per square meter of energy. Then one day after this impact, this local impact with a crater of about 110 miles wide, they show that locally, like Mexico, Central America, most of the United States, and the Pacific and Atlantic and Gulf of Mexico surrounding those land masses, they were now mostly blocked from the sunlight. Okay. I probably agree. Then one year after the impact, the entire globe was blocked from most of the sunlight down to maybe 15 watts per square meter. I mean, the entire globe? Really? I'll come back to that in a second. The next picture at 1.7 years shows a thin band that's starting to get some sun again, not much, but just a little bit more. 2.2 years in, we're now looking pretty good on the northern hemisphere. Not where we were, but not bad. And then five to six years after the impact, the globe is very close to what it was before. And that's the theory. Okay, particles in the air. I had to ask the question, how long do particles stay in the air? Because this theory hinges on the ability of enough particles staying suspended in the air, not just in the air, but in the lower atmosphere at the very least, for upwards of two years, circumnavigating the entire globe within the first year in a concentration high enough that it would block out about 90% of the sun's energy. 
Now, it took a little bit of searching, but I found a site from 3M that had various particle sizes and the amount of time that that size would stay suspended in still air. The particles in question in the asteroid impact theory are apparently in the 0.8 to 8 micron range. The particle sizes that the 3M site analyzed were 20, 10, 5, 2, 1, and 0.5 microns. They recorded how long these particles took to settle from 1.5 meters, or about 5 feet, in still air. If the air is turbulent, of course, they caution that the particles can stay in the air far longer, but they don't specify how much longer. Their findings were that the 20 micron particles took 2.6 minutes, 10 micron took 8.3 minutes, and as the size went down, the time went up, the 0.5 micron particles would hang in the air for about 41.7 hours before they would settle that 1.5 meters back to the ground. So I threw their data into Excel to do some back of the napkin calculations and created a graph, added a trend line that fit the data nearly perfectly, you know, like a nerd would do. And yes, I see some plausibility in the numbers that they came up with. From what I could find, the particles that were supposed to have come down and created fires all over the world were ejected 40 miles into the air. But these were apparently larger and heavier, as according to a Smithsonian website, they started falling back to Earth from 40 miles up about 40 minutes after the impact. So all the way up, starting to fall back after only 40 minutes. I mean, they had to have been heavier, which means they couldn't have spread very far, but these particles are what are being claimed as being responsible for massive fires all around the globe that caused all of the soot that was in the atmosphere. I'm not sure how they could cause fires everywhere when they were dropping out of the sky pretty fast. I mean, again, this seems hard to believe, but I'm not one of those science guys. Back to our sun-blocking particles. If they were all shot 40 miles into the air, the larger 8-micron particles would take about one year to fall all the way back to the Earth if they fell at the rate found on the 3M site. The smaller 0.8 micron particles would take just a touch over 70 years to fall that distance. And that's in still air. And those are very basic calculations, and they're highly theoretical. There are a large number of factors that I simply can't take into account because I just ain't that smart. But rain or ice, jet streams, updrafts, downdrafts, etc. would all factor into particles floating in the air. So sure, I don't know, maybe particles stayed in the air for a long time. What I logically have a problem with is the amount of particles it would take to do what they said it did. Notice that the article said it cooled in the initial aftermath of the impact. Yeah, sure, I would think that in that local area for a while, in that general area of the impact, the weather would do some funky things. But here's my problem with this entire theory. We have an impact crater of about 110 miles across. That's an area of about 9,500 square miles. The area of the Earth, or really the area of the atmosphere around the Earth, is about 200 million square miles. The Chicxulub crater is about 12 miles deep, 110 miles across, which equates to just over 7,200 cubic miles of material if that was a perfect portion of a sphere. If all of that went into the atmosphere and was distributed evenly, that would create a layer of particles about two and a quarter inches thick all around the entire globe. But remember, these particles are falling back to the Earth all the time. The larger the particle, the faster it falls. But the theory is saying that we had a thick enough layer of particles remaining in the air for at least two years to stop photosynthesis. A solid layer of material two and a quarter inches thick... Okay, I mean, sure, that might block out the sun. I guess it probably would. But those particles, unlike what the article implies, are not all going to be hanging up there for two years. 
And what does remain in the atmosphere isn't going to be evenly distributed around the globe due to the way that air currents move around the Earth. And if it's not evenly distributed, and it's not two and a quarter inches thick, but rather kind of a foggy, smoggy-looking atmosphere, that means that at least some sun would be getting through, right? I mean, am I looking at this right? If they want to say that particles killed the dinosaurs, I think I'd more likely go with the inhalation of particles, as inhaling fine particles can screw up lungs and the heart, nervous system, reproductive systems. It can cause cancers and even diabetes in some cases. But again, that's assuming these particles were distributed all around the globe, affecting all of the dinosaurs that they need them to affect in order for their theory to work. Back to the sun and the plants. Doing a little more investigation, plants don't actually need that much sun to trigger photosynthesis. Now, sure... There's less sunlight, then plants probably won't grow in the same abundance, but from what I found, plants only use about 10% of the full midday sunlight. In fact, experimentation has shown that after about 100 watts per square meter of solar energy, they just can't use any more of the sunlight. So anything beyond that is a waste as far as plants are concerned. That means that in this article where they show a large band of the Earth prior to the asteroid impact bathed in about 150 watts per square meter of energy... Only two-thirds of that was really being utilized by plants, at the most. If the sun was blocked out to the tune of 90%, well, I mean, the 15 watts per square meter is actually still enough for plants to photosynthesize, albeit not to the same level. In fact, doing a little more searching and digging, it turns out that plants need almost no light at all to actually begin the photosynthesis function as designed. The study proved that a single photon of light would trigger the photosynthesis process in plants. So again, logically, unless they could prove that the entire atmosphere was blocked out by enough particles for two years, I can't buy their conclusion that photosynthesis was stopped. Now I know, I'm basing my conclusion off of logic, not a computer model that was developed with all of the necessary assumptions baked in, but as I've done my whole life, if I were to be part of this study team, I'd be asking a lot of questions. This feels like a heavily tailored yet grossly incomplete study to get the results they assumed they'd get in a computer model they designed with the end in mind in order to prove a theory that has no tangible effect at all in the world of evolution or geology or paleontology. To put it simply, I didn't buy into the idea that the dinosaurs were wiped out by an asteroid anyway, based on my scientific worldview, but as I dig into this dog's breakfast of a theory, I really couldn't believe this tripe now. I mean, there are too many unanswered questions, too many variables, too many unknowns, and way too many scientific-esque claims that really aren't scientific at all. They sound like science. They even look like science on the surface, but they're devoid of any real science at all. As a Christian, you should believe in a six-day creation. You should believe in the sin of Adam. You should believe that for 1,500 years the world got worse and worse. And you should believe in the account of Noah, the ark, and the global flood. And why should you believe that if you're a Christian? Because Jesus Christ claimed those as factual, not allegorical or as poetry or a parable or a fable. Jesus said in Matthew 24, For just as the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. See, if you believe in Jesus, but you believe he was wrong about the flood, or he was lying about the flood, or something, whatever, you've got some major issues in your theology. So, Trim down just a bit for sake of time. What does the account in Genesis say? 
On this very day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark, they and every beast after its kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every fowl, every winged creature. So they came to Noah into the ark by twos of all flesh, in which was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and Yahweh closed it behind him. Now Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on this day all the fountains of the great deep split open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. Then the rain came upon the earth for forty days and forty nights. And the water multiplied and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. And the water prevailed and multiplied greatly upon the earth, and the ark went on the surface of the water. And the water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains under all the heavens were covered. The water prevailed fifteen cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh that moved on the earth breathed its last, that is, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth as well as all mankind. All in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, of all that was on the dry land, died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah remained and those that were with him in the ark. And the water prevailed upon the earth one hundred and fifty days. Then God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark, and God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Also the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained, and the water receded from the earth, going forth and returning. And at the end of one hundred and fifty days the water decreased. In the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. Now the water decreased steadily until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains appeared. Now it happened in the six hundred and first year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may swarm on the earth, and they may be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by their families from the ark. So here we have an account with very specific dates, and it doesn't matter if the calendar makes sense to us or not. This is an ancient accounting. We have very specific circumstances, very specific details. No, this is not a scientific account. But it can easily be used along with modern scientific testing methods as well as observation and analysis in order to determine if what we see today could possibly exist as it is with a catastrophic global flood in the past. This is what various young earth scientists and ministries have done through the years. In fact, this is what the starting point was for most of the fields of scientific study we have today. Spoiler alert, a catastrophic global flood easily fits with the earth as observed today. In fact, I've seen some studies conclude that a long time ago in a galaxy far, well, in our own galaxy, on our own planet, in fact, there was a catastrophic global flood. But not that. It definitely wasn't that. Now, I personally believe, and admittedly, 
I don't have to be right on this, and it changes nothing if I'm wrong, but I believe that the Chicxulub impact occurred as part of the global flood. I think it's very possible that when the Bible says the fountains of the deep split open, that the massive impact of that asteroid on the planet caused rippling shockwaves throughout the crust of the Earth, splitting and cracking it into pieces, releasing trapped water underneath. I don't dispute that the asteroid impact would have blown material high into the atmosphere, but the opening of the floodgates of the heavens that I happen to hold as the collapse of a water canopy that used to encircle the earth, otherwise known as the waters above the firmament, and the rain would have knocked that dust straight back down. I mean, that's what manufacturing facilities, specifically chemical producers, do. They have massive deluge systems that can knock down dusts or vapors in the event that a release occurs. I mean, falling water takes no prisoners. That's one reason it smells so fresh after a rain, and that's one reason why, for so many people, their allergy symptoms disappear, at least for a time after the rain. As for why the specific geologic layer they named and then renamed is found all over the globe, well, that would probably be because of hydrodynamic sorting. I mean, the floodwaters, storms, underwater eruptions, etc., swirled and churned everything, making a massive, muddy, murky mess. And as the water subsided, as the material settled down, it would have settled back by weight or grain size. In fact, in the Wikipedia article about the Alvarez hypothesis, it even states that the Chicxulub impact created, quote, a huge mega tsunami sufficient to lay down the largest known layer of sand separated by grain size directly above the peak ring. Again, hydrodynamic sorting. We see the evidence. Now, I admit, there are hard-to-believe components of the account of the global flood of Noah's day, but the global flood itself isn't one of those hard-to-believe parts. I mean, any Earth-based science scientist or, or academic would e either readily admit that there has been at least one global or nearly global flood on the Earth. Uh, no, they may not align perfectly. They may discount anything biblical. But unless they simply lie in order to run cover for their own worldview, they'll admit that there is absolutely evidence on our planet of a massive flood. As for plants and vegetation, well, I mean, first, a lot of the land-based plants would have been just decimated through this event. A lot of them uprooted, churned around, buried. For those that experienced the floodwaters without the devastation, making the assumption that they worked basically the same as they do today, well, being underwater for about a year would have likely killed some, caused others to lay dormant. Of course, some still continue to photosynthesize, albeit much slower while underwater. And since they require carbon dioxide, when the waters receded, there would be CO2 in the atmosphere from volcanoes and plant decay, but pretty much nothing from exhaling living creatures. So I'm not sure how long it would have taken for plant life to really catch back on and take off, but it, it obviously did. That said, the main disputes with the biblical flood account have to do with the big boat and so many animals. And both of those arguments have been discredited over and over again, proving that, yes, the ark could be built as described, it could survive a flood, and the massively churning seas that would have been swirling for at least the first 40 days or more, and all species of animals could have been housed at their basic level of kind on the ark, along with the supplies needed for a year. Those are all scientifically possible. What it comes down to is the fact that people just don't want to hold a biblical worldview. There are implications, both personally and professionally, when you step outside of the safe humanist philosophy. It's easier to just go along to get along. So as the world scrambles for new theories and scratches and claws for grant money by tweaking existing theories, the Bible holds steady. 
It doesn't need scientific confirmation, although it easily has it. Studies can be done to more fully understand what happened, but the account never changes. Man's theory is constantly changing, which they'll call the scientific method, but it's not. That's a smokescreen. See, the scientific method creates and tests hypotheses. It finds errors, then it creates a new hypothesis, all the while blindly allowing the data to dictate the conclusion. The evolution theory has already determined and mandated the conclusion. So any so-called scientific method used is nothing but directed self-affirmation. <laughs> we know evolution is true. Well, how do we know evolution is true? Because we see evidence of evolution. Well, how do we know this is evidence of evolution? Because we know evolution is true. I mean, this is the parent that answers back to the child asking why they have to do something with the single word, because. You know, don't think about it. I've done that part for you. Now, you just do as you're told. So this new tweak on a relatively young theory regarding an asteroid and dust and blocking of the sun and cold and 75% of species dying out, is it plausible? Only if you have faith. From just my knuckle-dragging, logic-based Google analysis, I have a lot of questions that I'm confident they'd give me answers for, but I'm not confident the answers would be any better than their theory. Personally, looking at the evidence, looking at the stability of the theories as presented, if I'm going to place my faith in something or someone, I can't see any way that I'd place it in man's constantly shifting, wholly implausible, scientifically weak theories. I mean, take my word for it. The asteroid theory isn't settled science. There will be more tweaks, more rewrites, new analyses, new hypotheses, arguing scientists, conferences that end in fisticuffs, and probably science-based gang wars. And they're all fighting on the same side of the real argument, which is God or not God. So, as I said, personally, I'll choose God. I'll choose the Bible as written. That'll be my firm foundation, my unwavering, unchanging starting point, and then I'll go from there. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless middle of November. Can you believe it? We're only like, what, six weeks away from 2024. Have you started thinking about your goals for 2024? Not talking about resolutions. I mean, do those if you want, but those, I think, statistically never work, I think is approximately the percentage there. Goals are something to shoot for, right? Various areas to try to improve, to grow, to learn, or whatever. Um, I think I'll talk about it a little bit more in a few weeks, but I know that I've been starting to think about my goals for next year, little bit based on what I've done and what I've tried, where I've succeeded, where I've failed uh, this year so far. Yeah, this is goal update number 38. And speaking of fail, let's take a look at my weight loss goal. Okay, so here's what I don't know, how much I actually weigh right now. But from how I feel, it's too much. I know it's too much, all right? I'm definitely someone that needs to track my intake, okay? Because I know my preferred intake amount of calories far exceeds what my intake should be. 
That said, the working out thing is still going well. I'm burning around 800 calories in a workout, but a workout, as I said before, is a mixture of elliptical for some cardio and then exercise bands for, I guess, quote unquote, weight training. Takes me about 90 minutes total, so I can't do that every day, nor should I, as the body needs time to rest and rebuild. So I'm formulating what I need to do for next year, and I've got a variety of ideas I'm just kind of trying to piece together, and we'll see if I can get there by January. Okay, one thing that I had mentioned the last few weeks is that my goal of, say, 175 pounds or 170 pounds, that might be wrong for me. Okay, now for a guy of 5'7 or 5'8, 175 pounds is typically considered to be kind of high, but except for one time, every time when I get to about 180, 185 pounds, something starts to fall apart. Okay, I I just can't get past that hump. Now, I've also mentioned that the BMI scale clearly can't be correct as what they say I am versus what my scale says I am in terms of fat and muscle percentage versus what I look like versus what I can actually get to. None of that actually adds up. It just doesn't work. Okay, so I took, well, I don't know, at least a couple hours one night and I started trying to figure out and find information on what is the correct weight when you take into account fat percentage, muscle percentage, you know, different stats like that. Now, I was honestly shocked to find out that that's not anywhere near as easy to find as you may think it would be. There's a number of sites with different charts and graphs and body types and frame sizes, a number of ways to calculate fat percentage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But finding something that kind of pulls everything together, I don't know, maybe you need to hire an expert to crunch the numbers for you. That said, I found one website and I saved it. I just, just now looked at the web address which both made me chuckle and made me think I'm right. You need an expert. So let's do this the right way, shall we? Found on trainercarlos.com, headline, How Much Should I Weigh with Muscle, Male versus Female? Now, admittedly, I have not read through all of this yet. I've put the link in the show notes. You can dig through it if you want. But I guess Trainer Carlos had a couple of tables of information down there, about halfway down, of the recommended ideal and healthy weight for women, and then below that one for men. He organized it by height, and it shows by body fat percentage what body type you've got and what weight you should shoot for in that body type. What's interesting, and what I've been suspecting, is that a lower body fat percentage actually suggests a higher weight, okay? Uh, Now, that, of course, has to take into account muscle and other things as well, but we're at least getting somewhere, I think. So for me, I'll say that I'm 5'7". I'm probably closer to 5'7 than 5'8". If I have a normal body type, 20% fat, I should be shooting for 165 pounds. Athletic at 16% fat, 175 pounds. Athletic muscular at 14% fat, 190 pounds. Now for a guy 5'8", you add five pounds to each one of those numbers. So for me, I'm looking at a goal for next year of body fat versus weight. That's what I'm kind of trying to look at. And of course, muscle in there as well. I'm thinking that my goal should be maybe somewhere around 180 pounds and around 15 to 16% fat. Now I need to refine it more, right? This is just me trying to noodle it out. But this table of info, it's it kind of makes sense to me a little bit. And it may make sense to you as you may be an athletic person, male or female, you may have a lower body fat percentage, but a higher weight, and you're trying to get weight off and you can't figure out why you can't do it. It may be that the struggle that you have with weight is is not actually a struggle at all. I don't know. So I would say, take a look at this, maybe spend the 30 or $40 to get a well-rated scale, 
that checks all of the stats for you, you know, something that shoots that, I don't know, 480 volts up through your feet or whatever it does, right? And then maybe join along with me, create a goal that takes into account more than just weight as a number. I don't know, more on that later. Now, as I said, I absolutely need to lose fat. I need to gain muscle. And overall, I need to lose some weight. So I still need to track calories in versus out. So I've resigned myself to this is who I am for the rest of this year, for the most part, but I'm working out what I want to do for next year. We'll get more on that later. Okay, moving on. Page is read. Okay, here's the thing. I finished the book. (laughs) It was only 17 pages, and that's all I actually read last week, but I got it done. I succeeded in that thing. Now, this puts me at 5,383 pages and 23 books read so far in 2023. That's three pages more, although two fewer books, than in 2019, which moves 2023 into second place for number of pages read in the seven or so years that I've been tracking it. Now, I don't think, eh, no, I know I won't be able to beat 2018, which is my record of 8,909 pages and 35 books. There's no way I'll have the time or the dedication to add another 3,600 pages in the final weeks. I'm not sure how I did that in 2018. Anyway, so what was this book that took me so long? Well, it was the book entitled Heaven by Randy Alcorn. I'll say this. I highly recommend the book. I know a lot of people have read it already. I've had it on my shelf for, I don't know, a number of years now. Just had never pulled it down and read it, probably because it's almost 500 pages long. But this is an excellent book. But I'll caution you, be prepared for a range of emotions. That's one of the reasons it took me so long. I wanted to read it, but I absolutely did not want to read it once I got reading it. Let me explain. I'll start with a little bit of basic review stuff first here. So Alcorn takes a very practical, biblical look at at what is meant by heaven after the rapture, after the judgment, etc. You know, heaven for eternity, okay? He's very right that there have been, I don't know, a lot of speculation as to what exactly heaven is. And for most of us, at least I bet, it's got some sort of a spiritual, cloud-based, disembodied soul feel to it. Now, I don't know if that's just how we've all been taught or or what. It, it sounds like from his background info that this isn't how it's always been understood. Just somewhere down the line, things changed. And we went from a very real, very physical, resurrected physical body on a resurrected, perfected physical earth type of view to sitting on clouds in the sky playing harps. Now, to be honest, I'd liken it to the same thing that happened with Calvinism and Armenianism. I mean, the Calvinist viewpoint was the default viewpoint going back to Paul and to Jesus. If you were Baptist, you were Calvinist. Then somewhere something changed and Armenianism crept in and then took over. I mean, now the typical Baptist church is much more likely to be Armenian. Somewhere down the line, there's been a softening of the gospel and a reinterpretation of the Bible. And I'm not sure why, but it's taken over as the dominant view. Anyway. Alcorn takes a very practical look at eternity, heaven being the reconstructed earth, much the same as earth is today, us much the same as we are today, only with sin and the effects of sin removed from the equation. Bottom line, we'll know people we knew, we'll live in houses, we'll live in cities, we'll travel, we'll build, we'll explore, we'll create and imagine, we'll do the things, relatively speaking, that we did before. The exact same with some differences. And my dad always jokes that heaven to him would be a junkyard with all the right car parts in there for whatever he's creating or rebuilding or whatever. And from Alcorn's perspective, I think that's very possible. 
maybe not exactly the same, but better. And it won't be where we can make a wish and the part just pops up. No, we may need to dig for it and get the tools out and remove it from there to put it on over here. And while we're speaking of parents, my mom has all but given God an ultimatum that her cats of years gone by better be there. Okay, no, she she didn't threaten God. Well, I don't think she did. I'm, I'm not sure. But she has strongly suggested that she would prefer that they were waiting for her. Now, according to Alcorn, that's highly likely. Let me give you one criticism of his book before I move into my main point on it. He sure does shill his other books a lot in this book. Now, he uses many sources in the nearly 500 pages to make his points. His favorite source, you know, after you get past the Bible, obviously, but his favorite source is clearly C.S. Lewis, which is fine, although we need to be a little careful using Lewis as a primary source of theology. He had his issues like most everyone does, right? Just be a Berean. That's all I'm saying. His second favorite source seems to be in my book, and then he would give the title and then he'd quote his own work to make a point. Now, that's fine, but there were a few points in the middle of the book where it felt like a sales pitch, at least to me. I don't know. Now, that's probably picking nits, right? But it it felt that it was a bit much, a bit forced at a few points, and it kind of seemed like it was wedged in there. It didn't always fit quite right. That That would be one of my main criticisms, okay? Anyway, he uses a lot of speculation in his views of what eternity will be like. He uses a lot of scripture, a lot of logical assumptions to get there. I have no problem with how he arrived at the many conclusions he drew with the understanding and his own statement that he's clearly going to be wrong on at least some of these conclusions. Now, this book, although fantastic, is not a wholly inspired text. It's part scripture-based, part educated guess. That said, I'd argue that if the junkyard or the pets aren't there in the end, it'll be even better, and my parents will be more content and more happy with what heaven turns out being than they could ever imagine. But that idea, the human emotion of knowing heaven will be perfect and awe-inspiring, more than we could ever hope for, be completely fulfilling and satisfying, is absolutely in tension with the only life that we know, the life that we're living right now. That was my personal struggle inside of this book, and it was the main reason it took me so long to finish. I mean, I, like I said, I wanted to read it, but if I'm being open and honest, I absolutely did not want to read it. It really evoked some strong emotions as I read it. Now, you may be shocked to hear this, but my life is not perfect. I'd say that I'm not much different from most of you, that my life did not turn out like I imagined. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm unbelievably blessed, and I'm well aware and thankful for all the very, very, very undeserved blessings that I have, but there are areas in my life, some obvious, some personal, that I'm very unhappy with. I have regrets like everyone else. Now, I freely admit that when I get to heaven, I will be completely satisfied. I will want for nothing. I'll regret nothing. I will feel no more guilt, no more shame. I'll be living in a perfect world with my creator. I mean, what more could I want? But as I'm very cognizant of that fact, it makes me think of missed or lost opportunities in this life, mistakes made, sins willingly committed, dreams unfulfilled. And as a guy nearing 50, the statistics say I have fewer years to do or undo what I've done or failed to do in the years that I've already had. So there were points in this book where I had to put it down and allow my thoughts and emotions some time to kind of wash over me. Now, I know, and I'll defend in my dying breath, that God's plan for my life is perfect, that he's sovereign, not one thing has happened or didn't happen out of place with God's will, and that if I had the ability to change even the smallest detail, my life would be ultimately infinitely worse. But as a human, 
I sure do wish some things were different. (laughs) Certain chapters and certain topics inside of the chapters forced me to put the book down for a little bit as my mind kind of wandered or raced into areas I prefer not to linger in most of the time, areas I keep boxed up or tamped down or away from my day-to-day life. My guess is that most of you will probably have the same kind of reactions at various points in the book. Now, I don't know that I would call this therapeutic. It really didn't offer a solution to the emotion of now, but it does paint a very vivid, clear, wonderful, amazing picture of what heaven will be like. So like I said, I'd highly recommend this book. Just be prepared for an emotional battle as you read it. One of the arguments against Christianity, primarily coming from men, is that they don't want to go to heaven. And why? Well, for so long, it's been presented in a very effeminate way, floating disembodied spirits in white robes, flitting around, playing harps, constantly singing songs, you know, out of the hymnal, etc., etc. I really think that if Christians presented this practical, logical view of what is meant by heaven, by a new heaven and a new earth, it would go a long way in conjunction with the gospel message to presenting a realistic view of what God has and has done for his children. Not as a trick or a technique to win another soul, just giving lost humanity a real view of a real God, a real creation, a real salvation, and a real eternity. So that way too long of a review to say this. Read the book, all right? Highly recommended. And if you've read this book, shoot me an email or leave me a comment. Did you deal with the same emotional battle? I mean, someone tell me it wasn't just me. Okay, let's move on. Bible reading. Only four days of digging in this last week, as I said with the weight goals for next year. I'm trying to formulate how I want to approach this as well. What I'm doing right now is good, but I wouldn't call it great. I need a better system, a better plan, but we'll talk about that in a few weeks. Right now, we need to get some questions and thoughts that I had over the last week. So to orient where I am in the Bible, I'm through Exodus 16 in the regular reading, Genesis 8-5 in the in-depth part. I did not do much in the in-depth studying last week. That's the harder part to get focused in on and the part that I really need to develop a better plan for. Okay, so I have a couple points for the sake of time. I won't get into everything, just a few points here. First, we're now at a point where the Passover has taken place. The firstborn were killed and Pharaoh has demanded that the Israelites leave and never come back. I have long heard that not all Israelites left Egypt following Moses. And we have no way of knowing for sure if this is or is not true, but I'd say logically not all would have left, right? Some people would have stayed back because at a minimum, you can always count on 10% of a population to believe the conspiracy or vote contrary or go the other direction or whatever. In fact, logically, not every Israelite would have followed God's instructions with the Passover lamb, the blood on the doorposts, etc. either. Now, according to JewishJournal.com, they say that the stories and legends say that anywhere from only 10% to nearly 100% of the Israelites left Egypt. Now, the site suggests, and I'm not entirely sure as to why, I didn't dig that deep into it, but they suggest that only 20% of the Israelites actually left Egypt to follow Moses. So the Bible tells us that 600,000 men, not counting the little ones, left Israel. If that was 20%, that would mean that about 2.5 million men stayed behind. Now that seems like an awful lot, which admittedly would make Pharaoh even harder-hearted and even more stupid-looking, wanting to get those 20% back under his control while still having the 80% there. At the same time, if only 20% left, 
That would make a lot more sense as to why the Israelites didn't rise up and overthrow the Egyptians. If there were 3 million men there and only 20% wanted to throw off the shackles of slavery, well, it's never going to happen. Bottom line, I don't know. There's no way for us to know this, but it is an interesting area of study and something to ponder. All right, one more point here, and this one will be for all my math nerds out there. So in Genesis 8, we hear of the waters from the flood receding and the ark coming to rest on the mountains of Ararat. We know from earlier that the flood waters were 15 cubits, or 22 and a half feet, above the mountains. We know that from the time that God stopped the water coming in to the time the ark was caught on a mountain, the time that the waters were receding, right, was 150 days. We further know that there was another 75 days between the ark being caught and the tops of the mountains being visible. Now, assuming that the ark was caught on one of the higher peaks, that would mean a total of 225 days for the water level to drop 15 cubits, or 22 and a half feet. 225 days, 22.5 feet. Interesting. That equates to the water level dropping at a rate of 0.1 feet, or 1.2 inches per day. At that rate, we know that it took 75 days between the ark being caught and the mountains being visible. So at 0.1 feet per day, that means that at the end, the ark was sitting about seven and a half feet in the water. Now, the ark was 30 cubits or 45 feet tall, so at the end, it was riding kind of high, at least I think so, with only about one-sixth or maybe 16, 17% of the ark actually submerged in the water. The rest was above. That seems really, really shallow. But when you look up cruise ships, from a height perspective, they typically only have 10 to 13% of their hull underwater. The key is more about weight than it is about depth, at least to a point. So just as the cargo, the engines, the fuel, etc. in the modern cruise liner is at the bottom part of the hull, right, which lowers your center of gravity, Noah would have put the larger animals, the supplies, etc. on the lower deck. Now I know that a boat shape and a box shape, despite how Answers in Genesis chose to design their ark in Kentucky, I know that a boat and a box are different, right? But at least conceptually, this looks reasonably right, right? Okay, I know. A number of assumptions in there, but I saw a chance to do some math, and I took it, and since you're along for the ride here, well, here we are. Okay, last thing. I mentioned in one of the segments here today, color-coding my Bible. I found a nice multicolored lead pencil. I'll put an Amazon link in the notes if you're curious. And after looking at a number of sites as to how to color-code their Bible, I settled on my color-coding system. No real trick to it, just what I use. And my point in underlying applicable verses and passages is so that my mind can kind of organize itself as I read, as I flip through, etc. It's just an easy method for me to get into a frame of mind with regard to what's going on in the text. So here's my chosen color coding based on the pencil that I purchased. All right. Dark blue is God's character. That was the closest color to purple, the color of royalty, right? Dark blue. Pink is for prophetic text because they both start with P. Orange is for God's sovereignty. Orange is my favorite color, and this concept of God being sovereign over all holds a special place for me. Brown is for sin or rebellion. That's the closest thing that I had to black in. Yes, I know I could have used a regular pencil for black, but I didn't want to have to carry around one more thing. Red is for God's salvation or mercy or grace, either directly or foreshadowing of what's to come. Light blue is for things I consider to be my responsibility, a description, a command, actions that are done by others that I should or must apply to my life. And light green is for passages that don't really fit in the other categories, but it means something to me for whatever reason. 
That leaves yellow in the pencil, and I guess that's for other, but to be honest, it really doesn't show up that well, so I, I think I've used it one time. And some passages can have multiple colors. A lot of the pink prophetic passages are also orange sovereignty passages, so there can be multiple colors in there as well. Okay, that's got to be enough for today. I've taken up way too much of your time, and as we all know, time is money, and time waits for no man, and the love of money is the root of all evil, so when you do the math, you've got some evil that you absolutely love that's getting really impatient for you to get to it or something. I don't know. Okay, bye.